You're listening to The Vent Podcast, where we bring you interviews and stories from around the world of wine and spirits. From winemakers and critics to sommeliers and master distillers, we'll explore the people and businesses who are instrumental in shaping the future of today's food and drinks culture. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, joined once again in the studio by Billy Galenko. Billy, it's been a little bit since we got to sit down and do a proper recording. Yeah, between, well, we, we had you on the intro last week, but yeah, we've been doing a bunch of interviews without you, so I'm glad to have a, a full Billy and Brady episode this week. That's right, yeah. We, coming up, we'll intro as we always do, Austin Hope, but I can't remember the last time we had a producer on that is ubiquitous across, I, I think, like different folks in, interested in wine kind of recognize their product as quality, both they have the critical acclaim, they have the commercial interest among just kind of casual wine drinkers, Austin Hope wine. So really great to have Austin on today. We'll talk about that later. That's what folks can look forward to. But when you hear about what you've been up to, what have you been drinking? Yeah, you'd, you'd have been proud of me. I have a buddy moving away from LA to Chicago. And I was trying to, we, we had a little going away meal last week. So I was trying to get a wine that the same vintage that he moved here. And uh, it was 2016. I was looking through my wines. I have some tucked away that are really hard to get at right now. So it's possible there's a 2016 in there. But for some reason, I only have 2015 and 2017s that I was that were close. So I ended up going to 2017. But it was a Ridge Merlot estate. Ridge, so from the Montebello estate. It was fantastic. I love Ridge Merlot. I know you love Ridge in general. But I shared it with five other guys who are not wine people and they like raved about it like the whole time and it was nice to see it was actually really nice because normally i show people wine and they'll either say it's really good but i even went downstairs and he's at his apartment building and they were like grilling up in the roof and i went downstairs and like got something came back and they were like talking about the the white wines they liked like it actually sparked wine conversation among like very much not wine folks so i was like oh this is cool so yeah that's great santa cruz mountains will do that to you yeah, well, I was, I also, I mean, it was so, this guy actually had a, a follow-up, like a going away thing that was a little larger with a bigger group later. And his brother was trying to explain to his friend the wine and that it, like his brother's closer to 40 and his friend is a lawyer in LA. I think he's from California. Well, no, I think he might've grew up on the East Coast, but he's lived here for decades and he's a lawyer. So he, they drink nice enough wine. He had never heard of Ridge at all. So he was like asking me more questions about it. I was like, are you guys... <laughs> So it's like one of one of the top. I was like, if you meet any sommelier in the U.S., if they list their top five U.S. producers, I guarantee Ridge will be in there for almost all of them. So, yeah, that's how I explained it. It's always weird to talk. Like you, if someone drinks a lot of U.S. wine and doesn't know Ridge, then they probably only drink Napa, like the Valley. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's what this because, guy said. He's like, that's a great reco. I'm going to Napa next week, though. Do you have any records there? <laughs> I was like, yeah, of course. Funny. Yeah. 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 I have, doing a similar thing. A friend of mine's getting close friend of mine's getting married. And for his bachelor party, I'm going to take up a, the a wine from the year that him and his future wife met. So it's 2016 actually as well. And I'm taking the Sterling Iridium. I don't know if you know that bottle from Sterling. No. I think they served it at a recent Emmy Awards thing. I think they served like the 2015 
I like the Emmys a couple oh. years ago. That wasn't how I heard about it, but it was, I had acquired the bottle like just before that. And then I saw it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But yeah. And it's a really interesting bottle. It's like black. Is it a blast? I'm actually not sure. I think it might be 100% cab, but I'm not certain. They just um, gave it a name. Yeah. Sterling Iridium. Yeah, I guess I look it up. But anyways, it's a black, it's a black glass bottle with like really unique silver like shoulder like shoulders on it like a really elegant looking bottle so we're gonna i'm gonna get like a, a white paint pen or like a silver paint pen and have all the guys at the bachelor write something on it or whatever so after we drink it he can keep the bottle and because it like something that looks nice enough on on a shelf kind of thing we'll do that nice that's really cool yeah, yeah. i like that idea see. a lot let's see I bought a ton of 2016. Well, you're looking when, that up. 2016 was big. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like all of California, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a great year. Yeah. All of my stuff that I was looking through were... I've, I had a lot more Italian wine than I expected. I have others that are under my... I have to like stuff all tucked away. So I, I think the, the reason I had a lot of 2015s, I think these were all like Barbaresco, Barolo, and like Brunello's, which... I know 2015 wasn't the best year since 2013, but it was still pretty good. So I guess somehow I've just randomly acquired them. So while you're looking that up, though, I also went to this. It's supposed to be a speakeasy within a whiskey bar. So it's the, the best whiskeys of that place and had the flight. And the guy was the guy. The server wasn't wasn't the most helpful. But the main thing I had was a, a Glen Moray um, that was made with bare barley, which is like a native land race barley. So that was pretty cool. He also Gave me like a an American single malt for free, and then some other one that you would have recognized that I don't know as well. It was a bourbon, but it's one of the ones mm. that has like a little figurine on the top. I forgot the producer's name, <laughs> like uh-huh. the horse thing, Blanton's, but it was only made for the Jap the Japanese market. The, is it the green label one, or green, red, or black, uh, something like that? I don't think so. I don't know if you can see this, but like it, it looked kind of like this. Oh, yeah. That? Okay. That yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I can't tell. Is the label red or is it brown? It's like tan. Yeah. Tan. Yeah, it's the normal. Okay. It must it just be bland, Bland's SVB, SFB. Sorry, this is great yeah. podcasting for everyone. But yeah, the, the, guy, the, the guy did a horrible job at explaining any of them. So I was just like, I'm not going to go back there. But anyways, either you yeah. right there. Yeah, I found this. I found this Sterling Iridium. It's 100% cab, but it's 18 months and 91% French, 9% Hungarian. And I see Lisa Prati Brown, 93 points. Why not? Friend of the, the program. Point. Yeah, friend of the pod. That's right. Concentrated, mm-hmm. robust, full bodied. I'm sure the guys will like it. <laughs> nice. That was, anyways, could be my description for the Ridge. But before I forget, I wanted to do my wine of the week or what we're drinking this weekend yep, as well do it. and yeah so that was i was inspired this weekend we were actually at the same going away party thing um and one of our friends is from argentina originally and he was going down there and we got to talking a little bit about what was going on he's oh there's an election going on and i actually had no idea i don't think many people keep up with the regular argentinian elections but it made me think that we haven't really touched much on the podcast even after we had santiago on the pod about why Argentinian wines can be so affordable. I know I have a ton of friends who absolutely love Malbec, even if they're not that into wine. 
from Argentina. So there's two points I want to make. One is about the unique quality of the Argentinian wines, and that will be Argentinian Malbec I'm specifically talking about. And then also the affordability and kind of TLDR and why they're affordable. First, a lot of the Argentinian Malbec that you love from Mendoza, not all of the regions are super high, but places like the Uco Valley and some other places are very high elevation. So what this will allow, again, I'm talking about like over a mile in some cases above sea level. This allows for hot days and cool nights, which everybody knows helps ripen during the day. And then the cool nights help stop that ripening and allow acid to be retained. Also, the elevation allows the sun rays to actually be stronger. So that creates kind of thicker skins, which ends up darker color, darker tannin. But what that also does is allows them to ripen fully phenolically rather than just pretty, like developing just sugar. So it's ripening all of the fruit and the flavors in the skin, not just creating alcohol. So there's this really unique dynamic that you're getting in high elevation Argentinian Malbec that actually does make it different and unique. So you're not crazy if you're saying you like this Malbec and maybe you don't like another one that's maybe grown in California for whatever reason. So I think that's really cool. I've always loved that. And then the second piece is the affordability. There's always been a really good exchange rate between, not always, but in the recent past between US, the US dollar, it's been very strong in Argentina. So if you go to visit there, I've always heard you can eat like a king. Your dollar goes a really long way. And in return, when they're selling the wine to the US, they're actually able to sell that at relatively affordable prices for us and still make a profit or make things work down there because they're getting USD in return. And that's why exporting to the US is such a, a lucrative market for them. So I just want everybody to also think about that when they're going and looking at Argentinian wines and they're like, wow, why is it so cheap? It must not be good necessarily. That's not always the case. You can find excellent wines at really good values from Argentina just because of kind of the way the economy works. And the election made me think of that because I was looking at the results today and it looks like the party that's been in power that has overseen 100% plus inflation over the past year is actually leading and is now going to a runoff. We might be able to maintain our value for a while more. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, something I started exploring more South American wines after we did our South American collection. And we featured mm-hmm. Senya from Chile and Cheval de Andes were two that kind of stood out and I purchased after we did that collection, which is Mendoza. And the Cheval de Andes is certainly one of the top wines in South America. And I think the retail is around $120, $130. So yeah, mm-hmm. a ton of value down there. When you talk about Napa Valley, average to slightly above average producers wine starting at $120 in Napa, being able to acquire easily one of the top wines in the region down in Argentina is pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. that's good. Also wanted to note before we forget, this is our hundredth episode. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you to everyone for tuning in, listening to us each week. We've in- enjoyed gathering sommeliers, producers, folks from all across the wine industry for you each week. Really enjoyed this format. We had big plans for how we would (laughs) launch this 100th episode, but it seems like it's going to come and go quietly, which is fine. The Vint business is doing well, and we're excited that we continue to be able to carve out time to do this each week with everyone. That being said, if uh, you're listening to this and would like to email Brady, B-R-A-D-Y, at vint.co with one of your favorite moments or insights or episodes, guests that we've had on the podcast over the last several months or over the first hundred episodes. The first five folks who email in, I will send you all some wine. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear about what you've enjoyed from the past several episodes and hopefully a hundred more.
Yeah, I get. Yeah, I meant to bring this up right at the beginning. Can't believe we forgot. Just hacking on Brady's note there about emailing him. You have to be over twenty-one to receive wine, and Brady will actually vet vet you. That's before sending you wine. So we're not I'm just sending it to anybody who can hear us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for all the lawyers out there. All right. Well, speaking of Pat, <laughs> let's we can talk about our man Austin Hope here. You wanted to do a little bit of interest since he was your one sure. of your favorites before you got on the even on vent. Sure, yeah. Like a lot of folks, I think, who are familiar with Austin Hope or even just familiar with the Wines of Passive Herbals, which I talk about a lot. And Billy and I have done several interviews from producers in Paso and the Central Coast. Um, he's Austin's wines, for a lot of people, I think, are probably introductions to Paso Herbals. And we talk about that on the podcast. They make premium wines across categories, across varietals at different price points. Really, I think all but their reserve Austin Hope cab is under $75. So their entire portfolio ranges from $15 to $75. Really wines for everyone. And Austin, his family have been pioneers in Paso over the last 30 years as it's really come on the map. And a lot of farmers, growers there are transitioned to growing grapes. And now there are well over 200 producers in the Paso region and the sub-AVAs there within. So Awesome to hear Austin's perspective on how the region has changed, how they've marketed themselves over time, all the little things that they've done, just testing things out as they got up to scale, and then how their perspective on the market and perspective on their brand has changed as they come into really prominent national distribution channels and widely distributed coast to coast, selling and making and selling a lot of wine and working with a ton of different growers and still maintaining really high quality. Austin gave a lot of really good perspective on that, I thought. Yeah, I think we've touched on Paso a number of different ways so far on the podcast. And this was an interesting one because he's his family is really one of more of the, the legacy families. They're really, there isn't as long of a high quality winemaking back like history in Paso as there are in other places. So his family going back 30 30 plus years in planting wine grapes on a larger scale, like a very concerted effort is, is really cool. But it was great to hear how that's evolved over time, how they're really working with different terroir and they're really trying to create wines that are available at all price points, but that also do the region justice. And then they're also exploring having additional new varieties planted. They're testing out different things. So I, I really like to hear that they weren't just trying to do only more of the same thing. It's a lot of testing and growing and, and trying to help local growers gain knowledge as well. So I thought it was fascinating podcast, uh, or not podcast, interview. <laughs> yeah. Um, this I, is a good podcast. I'll just add, I appreciate every interview we do where we hear from someone who either went through a rapid expansion of their portfolio and in terms of the scale of their business or got acquired, like when we talked to Dan Petrosky or others, Tomas at Lingua Franca as well and their mm -hmm. project. I think we've heard over and over again, these really high quality producers are able to maintain and even elevate quality at scale. It sounds like Austin and them have done a great job at increasing quality and continuing to reinvest and ensuring that quality doesn't dip with scale, but actually, hopefully in some instances, improves. Yep. Here's Austin Hope. Hey, Austin, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is great. I, I think for a lot of people, Oak Family Wines is their 
sometimes their introduction to premium California wines, but definitely for a lot of people, wines in the Central Coast and Pastor Robles. So yeah, it's exciting to have you. And maybe we can get a little bit of an overview of what your family means to this region and, and how you got started in the business over 30 years ago as a family. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. You see, you say that the time time frame. It's it's definitely it's a little bit surreal. To be honest with you, <clears throat> but we my folks were definitely early pioneers of the region. We got here in '78 and started planting wine grapes and didn't know what the heck we were doing. But eventually, over time, it was proved to be the right right thing to do. But back in the day when we got here, it was really it was not what it is today by any means, and it was definitely <clears throat> grapes were not the number one commodity. It was more of a dry land, grains and things like that, cattle. And then slowly it's morphed into the vineyards. It was interesting because we used to laugh about it. Because back in the day, that instead of the grain farmers hated the grapes because they used a particular product that, that, that for wheat control. And when they would want to use it, it was usually about the times our vines would start, the buds would start swallowing and popping and, and start to grow. And if any of that particular product drifted, it would, it would shut down, it would spoke to vines for the year and wow. potentially kill them. So it was, they didn't like us because they had to stop using those products. As soon as one, one of the uh, grape farmers would say, okay, we've got bud break, time to stop using this product. But it's funny, the reason I bring it up is an anecdotal story because today all those grain farmers are grape farmers. So it's, we can come full circle, but <laughs> coming to the region in, in 78, slowly working our way into the wine industry over time, we were farmers, we sold. We didn't plant the right varieties at first. We quickly learned. And uh, we were back in the day, we were part of that whole Trincaro's white Zinfandel move. Well, that was, we were in the midst of that. We had Zinfandel. Wow. And couldn't sell all the Zinfandel. And then it turned into, well, we'll make white Zinfandel. And we grew white Zinfandel for a long time. And so we've, you know, we've gone through the, gone through all the transitions where we couldn't sell fruit and couldn't give it away. And then it was white Zen. And then we <clears throat> were realizing that it was really a, going to be a, a premium red, started planting more Cabernet and, and things like that. And then we slowly morphed into getting into the wine side of it, making bulk wines and trying to sell there. And that's how we slowly got into it. And then really jumped in in 95 in the real way and started Triana in 1996. And that's really had how we started. So we were definitely early on in, in multiple things, not only in winemaking and Paso, but also with the release of the Triana red, our kind of flagship brand, if you will, was a very different thing to do at the time. We we joke about it internally. We were a little ahead of things sometimes, but released a red table wine and with a 96 vintage, you know, at, at 40 bucks a bottle from a region nobody knew was was pretty aggressive. At the end, San Francisco, that's a lot of change during that time. Well over 200 wineries in within so AVA, isn't that right? Maybe yes. Probably way under the number. It's, it's at least, it's at least that, it's definitely more than that, for sure. Sure. When Hope Stanley Wines, Stanley's in the name, but y'all in stores coast to coast, said we're often a folks' introduction, I think, to the region in a number of different ways. How have you ma- maintained, I guess, your hands-on approach over that time coming to scale? Because you certainly haven't lost any of the premiumization that I think you would expect from a family and smaller winery, even though you do have the scale. So can you maybe answer that and also give us a sense of just how, what's the scale like? How big is your, are your estate vineyards and what amount of fruit are you buying these days? Yes, yeah, all good questions, really, because it's, and I appreciate your comments deeply because 
to me, as you scale, there's several things that happen. One is typically people lose, lose quality. <clears throat> and that was one of the biggest things that we've learned over the years is how can we scale something that's a premium product and continue to get better? That's always been our goal from day one. Uh, we've been aggressive about that. And it's been a fun journey, to be honest with you. And it's made, our team has only gotten uh, better and sharper and we were always, I think, ahead of the curve on not just doing things conventional the way everything's always been done. I'm not a classically trained winemaker by school, which I find helpful, to be honest with you. And my, now my director of, of winemaking, is he's been a lifelong friend, and he started out as a welder for us when we started getting into the industry and building this winery, the first winery we built. So his mind comes from a different way. And I've always, I was raised in a, was fortunate to work for Chuck Wagner back in the day, way before this, and learned a lot from him. And he's also comes from the ground, if you will, comes from the soil, farming background and learned by doing. And I used to ask him questions when I was young and be like, what do you think about this? I don't know. Try it. Try it. And so that's always been our philosophy of just trying it, right? We've done some crazy things and some people have worked for us and still work for us and have brought things. I remember when you tried that? Remember when you tried that? I'm like, oh yeah, that was pretty wild. But I think that was part of it and really maintaining, not cutting corners, right? That's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. And the other thing on scale too is, is interesting is for whatever reason, and it's, it is, it particularly, it's very noticed in the white industry for that matter and not in spirits and not any other things, but as a winery grows, we started getting where some people will say, oh, they're just a big brand and and it happened even with Liberty School back in the day when we started that, started growing that brand and scaling that brand. And that was a big brand, blah, 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 it's everywhere. So it's definitely not everywhere. Yes, we're growing and it, it, it's, it's the quality still there. The quality's gotten better, if anything. And I would always push him. I said, well, you know why it's growing? You know why it's scaling? I because I was on the road. That's all I did. When we started, it was me, a salesperson and and, and Jesse, which is still with us today, we, I brought him in from the vineyards and I hoed weeds with him since I was six years old and said, come on, you're going to make wine. He's still with us today. It's got it, it's, uh, which is cool because people like it. That's why it's, that's why it's growing. And why wouldn't it? Then some of the songs would get aggressive on things. We try and be, I'm like, I, I don't, I don't understand. I thought if it's, if it was a, a man and he's married, I'd be like, Hey, does your wife have a, a Louis Vuitton? Oh yeah, it's a great bag. She loves it. Oh really? Huh? I wonder how many bags they made. Three or four? You think how many bags do you think they made? Because I was just in uh, Hong Kong and there was two Louis Vuitton stores in Hong Kong. So th- I think they've learned how to scale something that that is yeah. Yeah. quality. And so why can't we do it in the white industry? And so to me, it's been almost a quest, right? So we've been outsiders to a certain extent on it, the way we we go to market, and, and we haven't really looked at it. We've definitely grown under the radar, right? People don't really know our size or scope. As you said earlier, we're coast to coast and we're, we're in uh, 36 countries and aggressively pushing to be in other countries because at the end of the day, right. my, my goal is to have Pastor Robles be a household name. That's, that's what I want to see happen. And I think it's achievable in my lifetime as Napa has done with, with their region. So what, why not do that? But scaling, scaling, scaling wine companies is, is extremely difficult to do, but I'd say the more positive thing of scaling in the wine business is it affords us uh, more opportunities in technology and being able to learn more, right? And really get into the nitty gritties and the micro understanding of 
what makes a barrel work? What, so now we have our own barrel toast programs. We have our own, like we were one of the first people to push barrel companies to age staves more than two and three years. It used to be 12, 24, 48 months. I'm like, why not age them longer? We age ours for five to seven years. And, and we started that a long time ago. We actually had to pay for it because we can't do that if we don't lose money. And I'm like, okay, well, give us a number. Tell us what it costs. So we did. Wow. And then we said, well, maybe we don't, maybe we don't want a steam bin. Maybe we want a water bin. Maybe we, want, we don't want a fire bin. We started doing all these different things. And that really was the tipping point for us where we just kept pushing. It's one of the big things. It doesn't work. Try something different. And don't just do what everybody's doing, right? You got to keep pushing the envelope all the time. And that goes from farming to winemaking, right? It's filtration systems. There's, there's so much. I just got done with the meeting with our vice president, Gretchen Roddick, and she's, she's been with us for 27 years and she runs the company now. And it's, it was funny because we're like, do you remember this? Remember that? We're like, well, yes, but we just kept grinding and never settled. That's the big thing for us. And as far as where we're at today, when we, we first started here, we were one of the larger growers in the area, but when we decided to get into the white industry and really plant, plant a flag and, and really go for it, we had to build a building and we had to buy barrels, we had to buy tanks. And that is then I joke, we get, we got to the white industry the old fashioned way. We didn't have any money. So this business is extremely expensive because we're always chasing our money. It's not like other commodities where if say you're a farmer, you grow your crop, you borrow the money for that year, then you get paid. Why do you don't do that? Right? So we've got two vintages. We've already bought two years of grapes and we haven't even sold a bottle yet. Right from that first vintage, and then we're aging. We have barrels for them. So there's all this. Your money is way, always way out there. So it's, anyways. The point of that is that we started selling vineyards to afford to buy tanks and barrels and build a winery. And so now we've, we're down to our state vineyard, which is where we develop our rones, forty six west, and it's about a seventy acre property, um, dedicated to rones and in the typical Gap district and. The rest, now we have uh, leases. We've got about 50 to 60 families that farm for us on an annual basis. And we've got our own director of vineyards that work for us. And then I've got another independent farming company outside of that, that we all collaborate and make farm plans for each individual vineyard. And so we're very detailed in, in what we do and, and how we get the fruit to where we need it to be. And then we've got a director of winemaking has created, our, we've created our own algorithm like how to gauge grapes quality. And so we're, we're always just constantly dreaming, right? It's people joke that sometimes they'll say, I'm like, I'm like the head of the Willy Walka factory, right? Cause we just, we, we create things and do things and sometimes they don't work, but sometimes they do. It's exciting. Yeah. I think back to the idea of scaling and, and quality tending to dip. I think some people have this preconceived notion that maybe it's somewhere like Napa where the vineyards are the, the best vineyard land is planted or it's like extremely expensive or it's somebody sourcing fruit from maybe this, not the Central Valley. Uh, yeah, like the Central Valley. And it's going coming from like way outside the region. But I don't think folks understand enough how young of a, a region Paso still is. And that since you guys are actually some of the older folks there, you're able to actually impart knowledge to these other growers. And actually there's all this untapped potential of these vineyards that are actually waiting to come online and it will allow you guys to scale with quality. There's no question about it, which we, we don't get too deep. So my folks were early on. So they were one of the, one of the, one of the founding members of the Pastor Rebels Wine Alliance, which has done a great job marketing 
Paso and still continues to this day. And then they were also one of the founding uh, people that got the Pastorables AVA established. And then I was one of the people that really pushed to get to the sub AVAs established. And through all these things, it's been interesting, right? Because like I said, the Australia Playing District, which is one of the sub AVAs, is, was really the workhorse, right? And if you've been here, that's where Treasury has their place out there. And Meridian used to be Meridian and, and Everly got going out in that area. Um, and it was owned by multiple different companies over the years, but then it started spreading a little bit, reaching out a little more. And mm-hmm. even when we were young, I was, we were always looking at different soils and we would find early in the career, we'd find certain Cabernets or certain grapes that would do really well. Like, why did that do really well? So we'd dig soil pits, we'd find out. And then we, back in the day when we were really trying to understand the region, we, we actually would get in a small plane and we had all these big uh, USGS maps and we would just, we would fly around and look at the areas that if we saw something, we would go back out in a car. We would dig around in there. We'd ask the people and we'd say, Hey, we think you have potential to grow grapes here. Would you plant grapes? And then some would do it, some would not. And now some of the areas that we were really aggressive on early on are now flourishing. And there's a lot of vineyards around there. And now people are watching us too, because they know <laughs> We're, we're having success with really premium Cabernet. And so they're, they're really watching us where, where the regions are we're watching some of our, some of our, 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 our other, other wineries here now planting vineyards in those areas. And so it's cool to see, right? Because I think that the 11 sub AVAs of Paso, the goal behind that was to just ex- highlight the diversity of Paso and what we can do, right? We grow a tremendous amount of varieties and we grow a ton of them really well, which is not normal. Typically, regions will be able to, they highlight a handful of things, right? Well, we can do so much in this one region. And because of the 11 subbeats, there's different soils, there's different temperatures, there's different rainfall. It's, so it's a really magical place. And that's one of the things that we can grow up a Syrah that's like Kuroti uh, in Northern Rhone in one area. And then we can go to another area that's only 20 miles apart. And we, we can grow a Shiraz, but wine is more... Like, like a Shiraz in Australia, you have more fruit driven up front, less structure. And so it's really, it's awesome in reality. And there are a couple really unique, Bob, you have your Mouvedre and Syrah. It's what, six, 60, 66% Mouvedre, 33% Syrah. I just don't know in too many models like that that you can widely, I know, I, I know I've seen it even on the East Coast. Uh, which is something that you would think, oh, well, we made pieces of it and it stayed at home. <laughs> yeah, but I just think that's really unique. And your Liberty School label, which you mentioned earlier, could very well be, you know, you know California cab under $20. And so you just have kind of these interesting little product, projects where you've been able to have massive success, it seems like, in spaces where I don't know anyone else doing those two things. You know what I mean? Yeah, same point. No, thank you. That's, yeah, that's a great observation. We definitely pride ourselves on that. We're super proud of that. And we're proud of offering, offering good experiences at all levels, right? Because I'm a consumer at the end of the day too. And I don't want to have to pay a hundred bucks for a great bottle of wine every day. I want to be able to pay 15, 20 bucks for a great bottle of wine. And it's doable. And I think some of the reasons we've had success in that, like even with the new brand, the Austin brand, which is 20 bucks, we have a cab and a Chardonnay, a Paso cab and a Paso Chard. Or is another example, right? So you've got Liberty School at 15, 18, you got this one at 20. Then you've got our Triana Cabernet at 30, which is hands down probably the best value that we have in our portfolio. 
and then jump into the Austin Oak Cabernet, which is more of a luxury, luxury side. And, and then we've got our, all of our estate rooms that, that we fill. And then we've also got a whole other program called Seller Select, which we make wines just for our tasting cellar and for wine club. So we've got a whole different market over there that like we make a Graciano, we make a Merlot, we make a, a Petit Merlot. We, have, we, we just get to play, right? And do whatever we want and, and make things at smaller scale. And so we've been very pointed in, in what we do, right? We are, we don't want to, um, we just don't want to throw stuff at the wall, right? So everything we do is very long-term bought out, right? The Austin Oak Cabernet brand was a five to seven year thing we looked at and can we do this? What do we want it to be? What do we want it to be like? What's our goal? Where, where are we headed? Can we fulfill it? Can we scale it? So we do all that footwork even before we launch a brand, which is a tremendous amount of work. If it fails, we've lost five, seven years of, of time and money that, you know, but at least we did it, right? So now we, we understand what it's going to take. And that's why Triana was actually born, Triana Cabernet, not the Triana Red, the early on, but the Triana Cabernet, because we were practicing. Can we make a premium Cabernet and scale it and, and continue to year over year? So Triana Cabernet was born. So that's why I talk about this. It it's like a baby Austin Hope Cabernet, but it's the value is ridiculous on it. So it's, it's such a great bottle of wine, but we, we did think about consumers a lot and we want to be there for all of them, right? We want to be able to capture the people that are just getting into the marketplace and, and learning. And these brands have success for several reasons, but mainly because they taste like they're supposed to taste that they taste, Liberty's Cove, for example, tastes like Cabernet, smells like Cabernet, has tannins like Cabernet, but not big. And, and they're approachable, right? Especially for early consumers. And We've spent a tremendous amount of my lifetime and the company's lifetime in, in understanding tannins and how to uh, not only understand them, but how to manipulate them and not make them aggressive and not make them hard. Because I think that's the old adage of, well, you got to lay it down to take time. And to me, I'm like, I always, I always hated that comment, right? I'm like, why do I got to lay it down? Why can't, why can't you guys make it taste good when you release it? <laughs> And I'm not being arrogant, but I'm like, I don't understand. And can, can, can you can actually uh, stop there? Can you, can you speak to that? Like ageability at your premium? Like do you, how much do you think of that with your Austin Hope Cabernet and your Reserve Cabernet? Because I, I know the regional profile, you want that fruit up front and, and you want it to be bold and fresh. How do you think about ageability of those wines or do you not like you just said? I, I do. I do think about ageability okay. because the it comes down to tannins, right? So the tannins on on those wines are analytically, they're very high. But what we've done is we've learned how to make them not be drying and aggressive and have a bite, right? We could, we've learned how to smooth those tannins, how to manipulate those tannins because tannins are molecular chain. We learned how to break those chains and their winemaking practices and then manipulate it. And some, and it's crazy because sometimes it, it, it goes against what you would think, like, even in fermentation, we're adding wood, right? And, and people, and that's another thing you go down rabbit hole is like, well, it's too much wood oak. I'm like, no, nah, you don't even have any concept of that. It's the more oak, like we, we use a tremendous amount of new oak, a lot. And none of our wines taste over oak. They, they don't. Are they factor in the wine? For sure. Do they, do they, do you get nuances of, of different things from a barrel? 100%. But you never have it where it's just, oh, this just, just let's taste that. Tastes like oak. Because of the way we've learned how to toast barrels, the way we've learned how to inter integrate these barrels, the timing of it, right? Like we cut up barrels that go into fermentation 
at the certain at a certain point we get we know when to put him in there and these tannin chains grab onto him and actually it changes the whole complex of how the end result turns out instead of where your mind would be like you're adding more tannin to it by adding more wood so the wine should be more tannic not smooth and soft and supple so we've got all these different things and from temperature so it's, it's like a circus around your what we really get deep into it, it's, but ageability to circle back on it, they do it because they do have a lot of tannin on them. We just, I just was been, been, we've been going through all of our old vintages and I was really aggressive early on in my career on, yeah. even when we didn't have much wine, I would always say, we want to save wine and when we'd save like a pallet of wine, which is a lot of wine, right? Way back in the day, that would be like, when I were saving, everybody's always on my ass. Now we got a warehouse full of all these wines. And so I started tasting them over the last two years and all the way back from 96. And some of them are great. Some of them are okay. Some of them are awesome. We did it for a couple of reasons. One is to be able to see if how we're doing, Wilden's Wines age. And then secondly, be able to, um, it, my aspiration back then, didn't know if we'd have success or not, was to be able to re-reintroduce it. Well, somebody came, we had some people in town yesterday from Tennessee, our distributors, and they went to a restaurant downtown and they were like, I had the 2015 Austin of Cabernet on there. And they were like, is that a mistake? And they ordered it. They're like, well, the, the owners know like, well, Austin gave me these older vintages. So now I'm doing that, right? Because that is another factor to help really promote cement Paso as a world-class wine region, right? When you see those family, does everybody necessarily drink old wines? No. I don't think they do. I think it's a, I think it's another one of those wine fairy tales, right? They really want to say they want to bring old wines. And I've done this very about a thousand times. I'll bring old wines to, to a, to a gathering or even do it in a closed scenario and be like, oh, and as the night goes on, you'll watch it. Everybody else tastes the old wines, but then they gravitate to the new ones. And those are the ones they drink. And so the next day, the younger wines are all, flowers are gone, at least really great fancy wines and then the old wines still have a half a bottle because it's not what people drink but it's more of a i don't want to say novelty is not the right word but it's more of an experience right like you get to taste something older that has age 15 20 years it's just cool to be part of it like oh wow that's cool i had a 2000 last night 23 year old bottle of wine and and I tasted it. And some people, they love those kind of things. It's a small percentage of people. To me, I think it's just be cool to be able to experience it. So when people come into town, we'll open them up. We'll do every once in a while. We'll just put out online and be like, okay, here's the vertical. 98, 99, 2000, Triana Red and Sullivan. But I've had to adapt to that too, though. So because people don't know how to deal with old forks either, right? It's a, so I started putting in, it cost us money, but it still didn't matter. I did it anyways. But I put those cork pops in there and they do a little video like, okay, just shove it in there and blast the cork out. That way you won't have any issues. <laughs> That's really smart. I was going to say there's companies like, like Penfolds, I guess, that do re, they'll recork your bottle every so often, but I hadn't heard of that, that approach before. So um, we're getting, we just talked about that yesterday. It's a great point because we're, it's been on my list that we've been just constantly going, but what we're going to do is break these things down this next winter, uncork them, the ones we think still have time. And, and this cork's gotten better over the years too. There's lots of things that's gotten better over the years. We're going to uncork and, and do that same thing that Penfolds does because it, it's, I think it's important, right? People like that stuff and it's cool to be able to see it. 20, 30, 40, 50 year old ball of wine. Yeah, no, certainly. But I also agree with what your sentiment on not everybody likes the old wine. I always find it really interesting when somebody's drinking an older wine 
and they want some of those like development notes, but the best older wines always have, there's still so much fruit and so much concentration. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you didn't have to wait that long to get that. So it was was interesting. Well, so with, I guess how, I'm just curious about how you think about your portfolio now and then where it might be going in the future. Are you going to try to continue to expand under the current labels or are you going to try to continue to develop this dynamic portfolio? Because like even something like the Troublemaker, like some people might not even know that's part of the the umbrella. I think it's an interesting mix. It is, and it is interesting because we've got a, we've got a wine for everybody. And it's, I don't know. I feel like we joke about it internally. I'm like the worst marketing person in the entire world, right? It's like, why, why do you have so many damn names, right? <laughs> and yet and people don't know that we have Triana, we have Quest, we have Troublemaker, the Austin brand, the Austin Oak brand, Seller Selection, Liberty School. We have, we have all these different things going on under the barrel of Hope Family Wines, which is, it's good. I think over time we're winning the battle. People are slowly seeing they used to that because they'll see they'll look at the label, say, Oh, they see my name on it. And they're like, okay. They're slowly putting associations together. And it really comes down to us doing a better job educating the trade. Right? The gatekeepers and the people that are actually the ones that are close to the consumer that they're talking to on a daily basis. And really uh, that's where our focus lately is really educate them. And we just released the, that Austin brand. We felt that was a there was a hole in the market. We used to do this, to throw stuff all the time, but I think we were early and we weren't as smart back then. So we've got brands that have died that we've just sat in a big box and sit there. And we started to do a, a premium boxed wine way a long time ago. And it was a brilliant concept in my mind because we designed the box actually to fit on a 750 shelf in a supermarket. So it was, it was, and it was, it only took up a bottle's shape and it was just almost the same height and it was a cool brand. But we're too early. Now everybody's coming back around. And I'm like, nah, though, what we were trying to release RTD, God, 15 years ago, we had a troublemaker actually. We had it in those, it looked like those little tennis cups. I think there was a brand that around, right? That the plastic and peel the top off and little grade. Couldn't get those to go. Now everybody's like, why don't you bring those back? I'm like, no, you just forced back today. We're not doing it. We're doing something. We'll move on, do something different. But I think you can send some of those and have them tomorrow. <laughs> they're super cool i think we, like with that particular brand the austin brand we saw that and the austin oak brand for that matter right we really believed that we want we wanted to be the, the standard for luxury basketball with cabernet and there was nobody doing it and, and we wanted to make a two three four five hundred dollar bottle of wine of our competitors are doing but be able to sell for 50 to 60 bucks and, and that's what we did and that's part of the reason we had so much success because it does the people that are drinking it know that they have to be a hundred, two hundred, three hundred to get that kind of a, a, a wine. And, and we've figured out how to do it, not at that price point. And we're fair too. We, we do think about consumers, right? We don't want to gouge and we want to make a living and, and we want people to enjoy our products. But I think as we, we look to the future, we're always like, what's next? Like the biggest one we've been pushing right now, which not a lot of people know is a, a quest, which is a brand that we've released. It's a, um, it's a sleeper and it, it's starting to slowly catch the traction, but it's primarily it's Cabernet Franc based. So we're bet that variety is really going to be next because it's a great, can, can be a great bottle line, but there's not a ton of them out there that are great, right? There's a lot of average Cabernet Francs, but not a lot of great ones. And most of the great ones are really not accessible by price and by accessibility in the marketplace. So that's one that we're really pushing and it's accessible. Ours is 25 to 30 bucks. It's not crazy expensive. 
We're excited about that. I think that's got to have some legs. Okay. We've, we're looking at other regions too, to be honest with you. We've, California is small. It is huge. And it's, we've like very scratched the surface, right? Of what we can do in this region. We're always looking at things like that. I am, I am been looking. We are now the largest grower in the state of California of, of Pinotage. So that's something that I'm very interested in that I'm hoping in the next, next coming years, we'll be able to release a brand that'll be dedicated to its own brand. Two pinotage. It's I find the grape really interesting. It's so it's a, a blend. It's it was Pinot Noir and Simsel. They bred those two together, and that's the the, the byproduct. So it's uh, it's it's dark, and as we all know, it's funny, but it's Pinot in America today is dark. It didn't used to be, but it is now. And have learned that they're believed that Pinot's dark, and it can be and it cannot be. So either way, it doesn't matter. He's just but. To me, I think it's an easy name to say. We've made a little bit of it because very little around. You can't really find it. We were made like garage. We found some of the backyard. It's how we made some of it. But I think it, it, it's an easy name to say. Pinotage. It's got pino in it. It's dark. It's got a little more structure to it. But it still can be fresh and great, useful. I'm hoping that is going to be something in the future for us. We've been toying with the idea of this uh, Graciano. Have you ever heard of these variety? Yeah, so I want to I want to make a comment about I, when we were yeah. in the tasting room two year, two or three years ago. Um, I think the attendant really liked us because she poured everything. One of it was the Graciano, I believe. Is did you guys start making that accidentally? Is that yes. what I remember? Yeah. Okay, yeah, maybe you can tell that story briefly. So there was a a variety or a, a clone called uh, Monastral which is a, a famous club in Spain of Bovedra. And we were one of the first people to really start planting rows in this area. And, and so we, we were on the short list to be able to get this new variety once it went through quarantine, all these things. So it was myself and Matt Travis and Lena Colado and Justin Smith from Saxon. He got some. And so we all got a little bit and we planted it and we're like, oh, okay. And this was supposed to be monastrol. Well, in, in, in Graciano is also known as Morristel. And we think the butters, I don't know. It was a, maybe it was a Monday morning or every weekend. I don't know. But they said, okay, you need to bud all these monostraw plants. And they grabbed the wrong buds that said Morristel instead of monostraw. They do look similar. And I think that's what happens. We get all these, we plant them, grow them, and they grow different. They look different. And ours was planted next to a Movetra block on our estate. And I'm at, man, these really look different. And then our first harvest, I'm like, I tasted them, but they're totally different flavor profiles. They're not aligned. And, and when we pick, and I'm like, so I text Justin Smith from Saxon. I'm like, hey, man, if you didn't get any of this new clone, I'm going to send over a box and you make it. You see what you think. It's really different than Bovedra. I, I don't know. It's very odd because I did plant some. I didn't know he'd plant some. He says, oh, yeah, I planted some. And so, I don't think it's, I don't think it's Mopendra. And I go, that's on either. So he sent it in to Davis and got a DNA and he came back and thought uh, it was not Monastrol. It was Morisil, which is Graziano. And I was pissed for three years, to be honest with you. And we tried to make it into wine. <laughs> Just, it's a different animal. It was really difficult to work with. It's easy to grow. It grows wonderful. It doesn't seem to be susceptible to disease, which is a big thing these days. And 
It's got tons of color, tons of structure. It's like gangly. It's just a very odd thing. And anyways, we finally learned how to make it good. And I relu- reluctantly released it because I had this, just this hate against it. You took six years of my life, but you're not what you're supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> and we released it and then the, the, our, our, our customers loved it. I'm like, huh. And so we made another one and now we can't make another. It's crazy. There's like a rush on it. We, we released it to, to on the web. What was it? Week before last. And it was just like, like build us ordered it. And now they're buying it. And they're like, some of our white club servers, like they have people that you call me when it's released. It is $90 a bottle. It's expensive. I know. <laughs> so I don't know. So I keep thinking to myself, but I don't want to get crazy and really go, but we are toying with it. Maybe down the road, it could be another variety that as, as consumers in the U.S. get more educated, that's one thing you guys do a wonderful job educating people. It's just the knowledge that for people now is much easier to come by, which has been a great thing for the wine industry because we've always been very stodgy, very archaic, very pretentious. And it was really difficult for people to get into the wine industry until the last, I think, say 10, 12 years where more people like you guys got involved and people are making it fun and, and easy and not, you don't feel like you can ask somebody in a store, can you tell me about this wine? And they're going to be happy to tell you about it. Whereas if you asked me you know, 10, 15 years ago, we said a word or, or a variety of, uh, to a saw at a restaurant, they're embarrassed for life. So it's demystifying. I've, I've, I've never pronounced a French word properly on this podcast. <laughs> um, one, one way that you guys did that really well, I think was actually at the start of the pandemic when you did those cooking videos in your house um, i watched a lot of you know companies make first-time content during that time period for six or nine months or whatever that was some of the best content that i watched that during that whole period there was just something about being there in your home how easy you were with with the audience and bringing them in not making the food like the cooking process fussy at all right and just yeah I thought that was really good content. You guys should do more of that. I'm sure you have all the time in the world to just stand around. Yeah, yeah, we do cook, that. <laughs> it's very sweet of you. Thank you very much for saying that because it was it was it's interesting because we we were finally coming in. And I'm like, hey, I think this internet thing's going to stick around. We probably should get more serious with our website. <laughs> and we, my wife and I, were working on building a new platform, all these things, and we started. I guess it was in whatever the year before the whole COVID thing and. It was like, yeah, it's 2019. We started it. We started building this platform. We're understanding them. I think this is where we're headed. We got to be available to these consumers and our tasting rooms are so busy. There's so many people all the time. It's like, we need to talk to our audience. That's the reality, right? So what I just said a minute ago, it's important to be transparent and, and explain things and let them feel part of what you're doing, part of the journey that we're all on, right? Because it's just, it's more fun for them and it's cool. We were playing all this stuff and then boom, that happens. Then we're like, well. Here we go. We had our platform already built. We released it. And we were actually in London, got kicked out of London in, in 2020. And this started, I went through COVID depression for a little bit. And after that, okay, we got to go. We didn't let anybody go. We didn't take any PPP. We just repurposed and said, okay, everybody, let's start figuring out something to do. And we had managers delivering wine to people's homes and dropping off of their porch. I'm making videos and my wife's making playlists and it's this, we just went for it. And so we still do them here and there, but I do need to do some more of those because people did enjoy it. I, I didn't know at first I was like, I don't know how it's going to come across, but, but I do, I love to cook. I cook every day and, and people had pain. They like it. I'm like, oh, okay. But because I, but I am a, I'm really big on, 
and the whole approachability thing, right? Not only with our wines, but just the style of how we come across, right? I think there's just, there's too much in the world that they overcomplicate things and try and make things cooler than they should be. We're already in a cool industry. What do we got to act cooler for? This is, it's like, we're, we're providing, what, what we do is, to me, it's one of the best products in the world. I don't know if there's anything better. It brings so much together, right? You can, you can break up over a bottle of wine. You can get married over a bottle of wine. You can get in a fight over a bottle of wine. It's just that, but it brings people together like no other thing. I think there is out there, right? Maybe food would be the only other thing that bring people together to where you can have an intimate group of people that you don't even know and you might be best friends by the time it's over. Probably not going to happen over a bottle of scotch, bottle of whiskey or beer. Probably not going to happen. Whatever why, there's something about it. It's just there's this leisurely thing that brings people together. And so it's really cool. It's cool to be part of that. You think about that you're in people's homes and then they tell you about it, right? And it's, ah, this is awesome. Providing happiness, man. <laughs> yeah no i was just gonna say <laughs> i completely agree i was thinking about the i just went to a whiskey tasting and i think that's an interesting note it's like by the end some people either just like way too buzzed or something and it's just yeah it's not nothing like a wine environment <laughs> no it's totally different you guys have a pretty pretty big i just call it your aesthetic sensibilities your a lot of your wines feature our work of some kind either by honest or by animals or by children. It, it, it sounds based on what, I, what I've been told, what I've read. Can you just talk a little bit? And even your tasting room is different than most tasting rooms that I've been to. Little pod sections feel like you're sitting in a living room when we yeah. were there. Can you just talk about some of that? And is that your sort of inspiration? Is it your wife's? Is it someone else? Where does that come from? So aesthetically, that's myself and my wife. My wife does an amazing job. She's an artist as well. She's a photographer. And she was a touring rock and roll photographer for a long time. So she's got a great eye. She's got great style design. And so we redid the tasting cellar actually pre-COVID. So we've been going at it. We wanted it to feel like a cheer point, like our living room, right? Because that's how we live. And we open and bring people in and it's fun. It's cool. It's not stuffy. It's not. Uh, which I always, I, one of the things why we really started pushing towards that way was I always felt, even being in this industry my whole life, when I would go to a, a winery, I felt intimidated walking in, right? There's this big, usually some big ass door, some long walk that you got to go to this ominous bar way in the back to check in. Hi, I was a wine. It's, it's already an intimidating industry. And then you make it even more intimidating by the way it looks. And so. We're like, we want it to feel comfortable, natural and fun and make it easy. And so you're not. So today, I don't know about what experience you have when you were there with level, but we greet you when you walk in, you don't even get off. You don't even get off the, the, the parking lot. Like as soon as you step off the, the parking lot, there's somebody right there with a glass of wine and greets you. And so we take that whole thing out of the picture equation, right? So you're immediately oh, relax. Okay. They know me. Tell me your name. They've said that. Okay. We're going to get you to your place. So I wanted to create the, not only because I don't like the intimidation backs or the wine, wine side of it like that. And I don't, I also recognize these people have gone out of their way to come see us. And it's like, you go into a restaurant, right? You made a conscious decision. You chose that restaurant. You're going there. What an experience. And so that's how we run it. So each person comes and they, we know they're, you're going to have your own host. That host is going to be with you the whole time. They're going to take you and sit you down. Uh, 
Inside is like nice little, like you see, you said, like your living room, there's little vignettes throughout inside of the building. And then outside of the building, I put, I love landscapes. So I'm like, how do we create like cool little, like almost like cabanas, like they do in Vegas, right? And so I built these, we built these little planners and put bamboo privets and they still like eat place when you sit outside you're out amongst the vines and you have your own little living room right with your people and so we cater to that and everybody gets their own experience is they'll give you as much education or as little as you want they read you they're pros and we shut down once a month and do training like we're really intense about customer experience we want you to leave there feeling good like we know you spent your time, your money, and it's not, wine's not cheap and time's not cheap. And it's, so for us, we want people to walk out of there feeling great. Like they're super happy, they're super pumped. They learned something, they felt good. Cause at the end of the day, it's an experience we're creating for you, right? It's not, not Disneyland, man. You're not getting, jump on to get on the ride and go on out of there. It's a journey that you're on with us. And so it's good. We weren't very hospitable, very much. That's our biggest thing. And but it's interesting. It's a machine. We get a ton of people through there. It's really difficult, right? To be able to make everybody happy. And we seem to find the way. I've got a Joe that runs the place. She just, she's awesome. I mean, she's, she's, she's got to figure it out. She's got to be able to keep everybody in line, everybody going. And it's definitely a, it's fun to watch from behind the scenes. But yeah, I think what's, what's that? It's good. What? It blows me away how flippant some wineries or restaurants can be. Like we said, there are two to three hundred wineries, so you could go to any given one. And certainly, people are going to get some of the bigger names, the names that they came there and knew before. But that doesn't give you a free pass to, you know, just shuttle people in like cattle. And, and you should be uh, doing even so, even harder. That's oh, exactly that's, it. Yeah, that's yeah. the way we look and, at it. And if someone comes and they go to three wineries, the chance of them that they're going to at least look at going to you guys is really high, right? If they yeah, come from high. outside of the region. So, I mean, you're the, you're, you might be their first touch point with the region. So yeah, always have appreciated your advocacy for Paso, especially as we've watched it grow over time and yeah. it has uh, even more connection than I do there. So thank you. Um, Billy, any, anything as we wrap up here? No, I, I just think that additional emphasis on, on how great Paso is. And I think, again, to your other point, the diversity of the wines in the terroir. I don't think a lot of people outside of, or even in California, really know that there's limestone soils in certain parts of Paso that really aren't found much anywhere else in California, much less some of the names that people might know, like Napa. So I think there's not only this cool day-night temperature thing, there's unique soils. There's actually more of a there is a reason behind why the wines are special, rather than everybody says their region's special and can make anything. Yeah. Um, it's cool to, to dive in and actually explain that. And that's why there actually are sub-AVAs. It's not just we want to have our own name. It's actually different and they make different wines, which are all unique and special. So I think it's great that you guys are helping promote that as well. No, thank you. Yeah, we're, we actually have a soils kit that we send all of our sales staff that our viticulturist, she's created Stacy. It's, it's really cool. She's She does great. You guys have a cabal. Get her to give you guys a tour. She's super knowledgeable and she'll talk shale, schist, and all kinds of stuff all day long with you. It's really cool. But we have a little kit we've made and to be able to show buyers, different people, and educate them what this soil looks like and this is what this soil looks like and and why this is important and why gravel, gravel, these soils are so important for high-quality Cabernet, why limestone is important to Rhone varietals in particular and different things like that. So it's, it is interesting. You're, it's There's so much, right? It's what, to your point, right? And it's really cool. It's and it's not like everybody says, oh, we can do everything great here. No, we can't do everything great. 
but we can do certain things good and we can do certain things world-class and, but it has take, it takes a sum of all these elements, right? The right soil, the right temperature, right club, right farming method. And you can't. So it is exciting. It's a, it's a very special region. It really is. Yeah. Thanks, Austin. Thanks for your time. Keep up the great work. And yeah, thanks for doing so much to promote just not only the region, but the quality wine making. So I appreciate it. Thank you both very much for your, for your comments and, and, and having me on. I very much appreciate it. I just want to echo Brady. Thank you so much for everybody listening. If you haven't already, go to your whatever platform you're listening on. Just throw us five stars. We don't need a, a review, but I was looking at our, our Spotify rating yesterday. Somebody gave us less than five. So we're not no longer five anymore. So I was sad. So everybody like subscribe, follow, hit the little <laughs> icon so that you get your notifications when new episodes come out. And we're excited for a hundred more episodes and hopefully it won't be a hundred new guests. It'll be a hundred new interviews at least, but it'll be really exciting. So cheers. Thanks for that. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.